Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Star Trek podcast. Join us in our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. With me right now is my co-host, Sarah. Hello! And we're here today to introduce one of our panels from Star Trek Mission Chicago. I'm so excited. This was so much fun. Today's episode will be the panel titled Firsts and Onlys, Barrier-Breaking Characters in Star Trek. This was all about, um, actually, I love the way somebody on Twitter put it when tweeting about our panel, all about the characters who are alone in their diversity. I love that. Thank you, whoever tweeted that. <laughs> it's a really great phrase, right? Uh, so on this panel are uh, myself and Sarah, along with Kennedy and Elisa and Grace and Jesse. Yeah, Jesse Gender uh, was our guest for this panel, who, I mean, you know, if you're a listener of this podcast, you know about Jesse. We talk about Jesse all the time. <laughs> we love Jesse. But uh, before we get to that panel, we have our regular housekeeping to do. Our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as $1 per month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media up to silly watch-along commentaries. Visit www.patreon.com slash women at warp for more info. And are you looking for podcast merch? I bet you are. Uh, check out our Tee Public store. A lot of us were wearing our Tee Public designs at Mission Chicago last weekend and got so many questions about where we got them. We got them in our own Tee Public store. Head on over to tpublic.com slash stores slash women at warp and take a look around. Or you can find a link from our website at women at warp.com. We also have one more thing to take care of, and that is a happy birthday shout out. Happy birthday to Azusena, who recently joined us on our Dark Page episode review here on the podcast, and whom we got to meet in Chicago. Yay! Happy birthday! Well, with that, let's get to this panel recording. All right, it is two o'clock, and we only have 45 minutes, so let's get into this. Hi, everybody! This is Chicago! Midland. I think we can do better. I'll try that again. Mrs. Chicago, make some noise! Saturday, baby! Let's get it! (laughs) Alright, so, hi and welcome to a Women at Warp panel, where we explore intersectional diversity and infinite combinations. My name is Sue. I'm going to be moderating today. With me up here on this panel are first uh, our guest, Jesse Gender. Uh, and coming down the table are my co host, Kennedy. talk about is that um, what I think many of us who are, are in marginalized groups have experienced being the first or the only in a room and we're going to look at the characters uh, in Star Trek in the universe that have uh, been in these types of situations and see how they handled them what we can learn from them and what in the real world we can do to sort of change these institutions so um, there aren't a lot of slides but they are going to change throughout it don't worry if you can't see the screen but uh, let's get started off with some examples. And let's uh, start early on with uh, Lieutenant Uhura. Woo! Woo! 
um, out of universe in our world, uh, this was a groundbreaking character, but in universe, she was also the only black woman on the bridge. Mm -hmm. So what did, well, how did that affect her character? What did that mean for her panel? Sis was busy <laughs> at all times. Like I think a lot of people, I hear some weird criticism about Uhura that she was always in the back and her legs were out. And it's like, first of all, mini skirts are extremely functional as long as you have matching bloomies, right? Secondly, the console was in the back. She was at her post, wasn't afraid to roll up her sleeves and you know, get under the hood as it were. Like her being on that bridge was everything to do with her being an exceptional officer. She just happened to be a fly ass black woman in the process. Hello? <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> her thoughts? So yeah, as a communications officer as well, that's like a really important spot to be in and a very important role on any starship. So she may have been in the background in a lot of episodes and she may have been sitting back there literally in the background, but she was doing a really important job. And it, I think it also goes into this idea that we've had in, this, in, this, in our culture that women's work is not as important or not as valued. Teachers are paid less. Like the occupations, like secretaries, which we used to call them, um, nurses, teachers, the things that people associate with women's work usually are paid less. And I think that's maybe why people are like, oh, why do I have a secretary job on Starship? But those are really important things that people do in the world that literally help us to have lives and to grow up and function in the world. So it's like some of the most important work is work done by women. And I think that's closely related to what's called unpromotable work, um, work that's done for like morale or team building or stuff in the office that's almost always performed by women and does not get them promoted and men don't do that work and they do get promoted. And I really appreciate that Uhura did not do that work. She was communications officer. She had a job and that was what she did. Well, while we're here in, in the TOS era, Let's talk about Spock as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's there's a lot of firsts and onlys when it comes to Spock. Ain't that Michael's little brother? Yeah. yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. The best, the best performer, worry. Michael Burns' little brother. Don't worry, we'll get there. <laughs> Somebody's little brother. What? But uh, as far as we know, Spock was the only half-human kid, you know, on, on Vulcan as a kid growing up. We see him get bullied. He's the only Vulcan that I believe we see on the TOS Enterprise, at least during the first three seasons. And he's the only character we have at this point in time explicitly dealing with identity issues mm -hmm. from uh, his biracial status. Mm -hmm. And bigotry from his CMO. Oh yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about Bones being racist towards Spock for a hot second? <laughs> can, we, can we talk about it? I mean like people like to make the argument like, oh it's just a joke. No, 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 no. You're supposed, to, you're supposed to make it clear he's uncomfortable with it numerous times too. Yeah. 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 Um, one thing too that I that I think is appreciative, uh, and we see it with other characters too. With Spock, is like he is a genius level Vulcan for Vulcans, <laughs> and like that's a lot of when someone's the first, and when he's seen like biracial, when you have a biracial status, they feel like they need to always be the best, the best person that like be an exemplar of not only themselves but of their their race, their status for everyone involved, while also trying to like live up to all the stigmas that are placed upon them from both sides about being part human, but being part Vulcan. And so that probably played a lot into the fact that like Spock was the genius level that he was because he felt he had to work extra hard. I mean, like he earned it, but it's still like really frustrating. They had to like 
have that placed upon him. Mm-hmm. All right, so that brings us to what I like to call the Spock archetype, or the Spockotype, as Grace came up with. <laughs> and I this is this is your out-of-place character on most of our shows. This is your Data, your Odo, your Seven of Nine, even the Doctor. Uh, on Discovery, it's Saru. Mm-hmm. You know, it is your character who is very clearly supposed to be out of place, that the rest of the crew, oh, to Paul, the rest of the crew is actively trying to teach to fit in. Mm-hmm. And some of them are receptive to that, and some of them are not. Right. It's the types, everybody. I love Seven. I love Seven for so many reasons, and in part of it, as someone who's like in a constant state of being socially uncomfortable, <laughs> while it is appreciated to have friends around you who are like, hey, do you, do you need a hand here? Let me help you out. I appreciate that Seven at first is just like, I want your help. Just let me be. Because yeah. I really don't feel like those people get enough credit, just in life and socially speaking. And Seven has every right to want to be kind of subdued and on her own as someone who's used to living in a literal collective where her brain is plugged into other people's. So what I'm trying to say here, the moral of this tangent, is when people want their alone time, respect that. Mm. Let people live. Yeah. One other thing, too, I love about Seven in particular is she is, I think, one of the few characters on Voyager who, like, actively stands up to Janeway and gets, like, to, like, talk back to Janeway and doesn't get to be, like, shoved aside because they're a member of the crew. Like, so many times, like, Anson Kim's like, this is wrong, and Janeway's like, how dare you speak up to me as a member of this crew? You go back away. We're never going to promote you ever again. But, uh, <laughs> um, but no, Seven, like, numerous times, there's so many episodes where she gets to go up to Seven and say, like, or go up to Janeway and said, you have taught me to be an individual. But when then I speak, I think she literally states, you have taught me to be an individual. And when I speak up my mind, you're telling me that, oh, I need to listen to you because of the captain. You don't value my individuality when I speak up against you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really appreciated Seven getting to be the one to say, no, screw you. <laughs> I'm not in your military. You Just because I, you, like, helped me find my individuality does not mean that you get to dictate how I use that individuality. Yeah. And I love that. Not only did you snatch me from my collective, it was Borman there. <laughs> <laughs> I had a so much, so much bored goo, it's all warm. It's just, I was we good. I missed my people. You know, I haven't seen two of nine in years because of this. <laughs> you tell me to be a person, I'm a person, but you give me trash? Like, which one is it? <laughs> I appreciate that, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the one on my list I really wanted to talk about is to Paul. Yes. Mm. Uh, Jolene Blaylock love. Yes. Yeah. They treat, I mean, they treated Jolene Blaylock terribly out yeah. of universe, but in universe they also treat to Paul terribly. Mm-hmm. And I, I always think of these dinner scenes, especially when they're, they're teasing her and they're making fun of her and they're saying, mm-hmm. oh, well, this is made of meat too. And just like trying to, to do things that they know are going to be offensive to her. And like that... Look, if your friends treat you that way, they're not your friends. Right. right. Okay? And Can we make that clear? about our age, too. Yeah. There was a lot of that. Yeah. Just like, how old are you, to Paul? So Paul just had the patience of a saint with that crew. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, we don't even just see it from, like, from the crew of the NX-01, but there's also, like, this, and it speaks to, like, how dehumanization is the wrong word to use for a Vulcan, but the idea of, like, dehumanizing someone of whenever Vulcans come to visit um, to Paul, like Saval, there's this idea of contamination, mm-hmm. that she's been contaminated by association, that she's somehow less Vulcan because she's now picked up human uh, attributes and like traits. And it's just like, again, this idea of an, like, infection or like, deterioration that dehumanizes people quite literally. It invalidates their experience. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you caught up on de- dehumanization because being a Star Trek fan means like when you're 
focused on someone's agency. You have to deprogram yourself and not say, you know, this is a human being. It's like, yeah. oh, this is a this is a person. This is a soul. Mm -hmm. So it's cool that you picked up on that. Yeah. Some as at board throwback stuff. Hell yeah. <laughs> Even yeah. the very term you use is racist. Well, how about Worf? Yeah. Yeah. Yo, can yeah. I go in on Worf? Yeah. <laughs> I love that you picked this photo. I tried to choose the photos where they all seemed the most uncomfortable. <laughs> But how did you choose one more? He doesn't even like the fact that we're talking about him right now. Look at this. Is that his, is that his poison tea that he yeah, like Yeah, that's, that's, that's the nice tea in the good house or the other way around. Good tea oh, in the yeah. nice house. Oh. Please tell me that second choice like, is going to really like sit here and talk about me while I'm sitting right here. Yes, we are. Um, in front of my tea. In front of my tea and crew, everyone gets, gets more tea today. Um, so one of the things that resonates most with me when it comes to Wharf is something I believe that folks in any marginalized community will uh, have, have familiarity with. And it's something that we talked about earlier about when you're the first or the only, you're responsible, um, you know, not because of your choice, of being the representative of your group. Mm -hmm. And that's hard enough if you're familiar with your group, right? If you have parents that are immigrants, or if uh, you've got a huge support system and you're in the LGBTQIA community, like that's one thing to have to be the representative when you're in othered spaces. But to be someone who never had those roots in their own culture, to then have to be the representative, Worf overcompensates all the time. Worf is a Klingon hotep, okay? Can we just put it out there that way? <laughs> That is, for those of you who don't know, ask your black friends, we'll tell you. Um, he's overcompensating for his lack of exposure to Klingon culture by immersing himself in it and almost putting it on like armor when he goes out. I mean, he just the brigadier he wears. Baldric, Baldric. Baldric. He wears a Baldric, right? No one wears Baldrics in the Empire, but Worf does. So it's like, what do you, what, what, you can put your kente cloth away, homie, we see you. <laughs> but that's also like important. If there were more people in your group being represented in all of their different ways so that we can establish that no one's a monolith, mm -hmm. then you could exist in your space in your own way. So Worf should have been able to just be like, Sorry guys, I don't speak Klingon. I grew up in Minsk. <laughs> you know? Worf should be saying stuff like Spasiba instead of, you know, yelling at people in Klingon or, or scolding people for not knowing every single measure of this particular Klingon. Bro, you didn't even learn how to spell Klingon until you was like 13. Cool out. <laughs> cool out. So it's it's cool because this was our window into Klingon culture as we know it past TOS, but it's also like I mean, even Jax, uh, John Cena held him to task for that. She was like, yeah. you're, not even, you're not even that Klingon, bro. Like, <laughs> what's even, but what's even better I love about that, too, is like, when, especially when you get into Deep Space Nine, but even in TNG, like, he romanticizes Klingon culture mm -hmm. because he's, he's an outsider to it. And in some ways, that allows him to, like, have this ideal of Klingon culture that allows him to, like, when Esri calls him out, which I always, uh, which I found interesting. Who did I say, Jadzia? My bad. Oh, Dax, they, 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 Dax, they both do. They both do. They both do. They do? Okay, great. Um, but, uh, but, like, in that episode, that allows Worf to be like, oh, yeah, I need to go murder Gowron, because he is not actually what Klingons, like, should be aspiring to. He's a politician, not that Klingon. Mm -hmm. But it also does, like, ostracize him from that, because he is sort of viewing it through a romanticized lens and not actually getting to take part of it, which is ostracized 
arisen from that culture, again, that sort of dehumanization and like, you've been infiltrated by human values, when ultimately it's like something that like, he, he like upholds those values as well. So it's like a complicated thing of like, he sits in this weird space where he both romanticizes it, but he also like is able to be a good reflection of it at the same time. Right. Yeah. And um, as like I definitely identify with work a lot because I'm someone who has grown up in so many different worlds. Like I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, very black, very Caribbean place, and then I went to high school, excuse me, in the suburbs, which was like all white, upper middle class. And then I went to when I did school, and then I'm in LA, and I just feel like I've lived in so many different places. And I've gone through the cycles of like, oh, I'm not black enough, and I'm only a quarter or a half, or however you want to quantify my Puerto Ricanness. So I'm not that enough to represent all. And so I understand like uh, Ward's extreme reaction to like taking on the Klingon identity because that's what people see, mm -hmm. and whatever people see, everyone in here who goes through the world as like a racialized person knows that whatever they see first is how they're gonna treat you, kind of like that's the basis of how you're treated in society. So Worf can, even though you're right, like Kennedy in a perfect world, he would be able to walk down, you know, down uh, Kono should be like, I'm sorry, I don't speak Klingon, but he's gonna get a lot of shit for it. I just want and... Worf one to be like, is that God? <laughs> yeah, but, and actually, like his partner, his baby mama was Kaylar. Like Kaylar was more like oh, I'm not really into the Klingons type stuff. Um, so yeah, I like that we got to see that diversity even within them of uh, the different ways you can be Klingon but between worlds. Yeah, and yeah. I really, really relate to that. When we zoom out a little bit, I think it's really interesting that you see Worf deal with a lot of the same types of microaggressions from his crewmates that mm -hmm. we see with T'Pol, that we see with Spock. But Vulcan culture is respected by a large part of the Federation. At this point in time, Klingon culture was not. So in addition to getting like jabs or good-natured ribbing from his crewmates, Worf got some outright disdain from some of the dignitaries and guests that were on the ship. And it was just blatant at times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we hadn't, I don't think, seen it that clearly before for a member of our crew. Yeah. yeah. Q was real bad at it. Mm -hmm. He was like animalizing Worf. There was a couple yeah. times where I almost jumped through the screen. Like, <laughs> you know, you cool out. Don't let me get guided. <laughs> don't make me get guided because you'll shut up real fast. <laughs> I appreciate that, like, as an extension of Worf's sort of story with him coming to figure out his own sense of Klingon identity, we also get Alexander's, and we yeah. get Alexander saying, no, you need to let me find my own way through this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Worf, having wanted his journey respected, has to kind of respect his journey. Right. Yeah. Well, for, I realized I forgot to mention when we started that this will not be a comprehensive list. Don't add us. Uh, so, but we are going to move on to Nog. So we all know this came from Heart of Stone as Nog is trying to get Cisco to sponsor him to go to the Academy. And I, this shot is just, I, I, I picked this photo since we're talking about what's up on the screen. Uh, because of the way it's shot, and you see there even shooting from above to make Nog appear even smaller than he already is, as he is essentially begging for Cisco's support. Yeah. And it's, I think it's very telling <laughs> of being in this kind of situation. Right. It's also, I struggle with that moment as well, because it, for all those reasons that you said, Sue, but also because Ferengi's grown, <coughs> yeah. right? Like that is a, an element of, it, it's normalized in their culture. Um, 
I wouldn't say it's a direct correlation, but like how a lot of cultures bow just to, is part of how you greet people and how you interact with them. Like Ferengi grovel, they barter. They, so that I felt like was pretty on point for the character, but it was still like looking at it through a human lens, like get up off the floor. If you don't, just slide the application under the door, man. You don't have to go through this. Subtlety is not a trait of Ferengi. At all, yeah. Especially when they want something. Yeah. yeah. Also, one, oh sorry. One thing I love about um, Nog's representation is it also showcases like how um, political differences um, are influenced like people on an individual level. Because when we look at like Spock and Worf, while they were like sometimes the first in, in Starfleet, they were at the times that they joined uh, the Starfleet, they were allies of the Federation. Like Klingons and Vulcans were part of the Federation or allies of the Federation. Whereas Nog in the, with the Ferengi were seen as at the very least like not part of the Federation or sometimes antagonistic to the Federation. And so the entire lens through which Cisco views his culture is incredibly negative. And I mean, obviously it's an anti-capitalist critique, so there's an element of like that coming into it as well. Um, but he just sort of has all these preconceived notions. Whereas, like when we look at um, Worf and we look at like Vulcans, like even Cis or not Cisco, Picard had this sort of like understanding of the nobility of Klingon. So at least there's some like positive stereotypes, still stereotypes, but still positive stereotypes. There's no stereotypes that Cisco puts upon Nog that are positive in any way. Mm -hmm. And it does take a scene like this where he actually gets to see the totality of his person. He like, even tells like Jake, like, don't go hang out with that kid. Right. Like, it's just, it's just all the assumptions placed upon him. Um, and one other thing I'll say too about Nog, there's a wonderful comic series called Star Trek Starfleet Academy. Yes. Which, which was the first gay representation in Star Trek, by the way. They had a character like was HIV, like they had HIV representation, a gay character, and they're written by a gay man. It's a great series. But that whole show, uh, that whole comic um, features Nog facing so much prejudice from his fellow cadets entering in there where they just have all these assumptions about him being a Ferengi. So like, oh, he wants to see a girl naked? That's what all he wants. Like, and he like actually comes across, like some, opens someone's door and there's a girl naked there. And he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And she like yells at him because she assumes that because he's a Ferengi that he was trying to spy on her. He was like completely embarrassed. Um, and so like all those assumptions placed onto somebody. Yeah, that's really interesting because I haven't read those books and the impression you get from watching the show is that Nog assimilated really well mm -hmm. and he really found a place on earth. He goes to um, Cisco's restaurant and finds the food he likes mm -hmm. that's from home and yeah, it's really interesting there's it's, actually a totally different story going on. You should read that comic. It not again, it has gay representation as everything. It was there's a great story behind it, but yeah. Also Nog is just such a great character arc. You get you gotta admit of all of the characters in DS9, I think he's the one who makes the biggest jump from point A at the beginning to point oh, B yeah. at the very the end of the Absolutely. show. Absolutely. He the goes heart. from yeah, he goes from being the kid who Cisco is telling his kid not to hang out with to being like this proud Starfleet cadet who's seen some stuff and has come out the other end of it kind of rough. Right. I also like the fact that Nog forced a lot of us to challenge our own prejudices. Yeah. Cisco particularly, you know what I mean? And I, I think that him getting into the academy, Nog meaning, um, and, and Cisco finally like, you know, shaking his hand about it was more than just giving Nog his props for completing Starfleet Academy, right, and being the first, but also Cisco being like, I, I messed up, and it was great for him to be in that position because he was uncomfortable in the same way Picard was uncomfortable after Wolf Three Five Nine. So it's like one of those things where it's like, oh, I need to sit with this, <laughs> just 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 a slice of this big old humble pie. Oh. Tangy. <laughs> and really just like do better. And I just think that was a great way to do that. And mm, well done.
And let's be real, from all the characters we're introduced to in that first episode of DS9, if someone had pointed him out and be like, that's the one that's going to have the super tearjerker episode that's going to wreck you, you right. expected it. Yeah, right. I, I, had, I have a friend watching Deep Space Nine right now, and they started season one, and they're like, oh, I hate Nog. I'm like, just you wait. <laughs> first, first of all, you watch your filthy mouth. <laughs> Secondly, give it time. Yeah. Well, let's jump ahead, or behind, and talk about Michael Burnham. Woo! Okay, okay, okay. Let me, right. let me give some facts real quick. Please do. All right. We have Michael Burnham graduated at the t- only, only human kid attending school on Vulcan. Graduated at the top of her class from the Vulcan Science Academy. Not just graduated, top of her class. Applied for the Vulcan Expeditionary Group, but the director, because she was human, went to her father and said, essentially, which of your kids do you want in this? And he picked Spock for basically the same reasons. Um, yeah, terrible. And she, this, Michael Burnham suppressed her humanity so much that she didn't start finding it again until she jumped to the 32nd century. Talk about it. Let's go. Go. <laughs> Let's go. I, when people, mm, let me, let me, hold on. Let me, <laughs> let me bring it back. Um, not only does Michael have all those great uh, credentials, right? Xenoanthropologist, highly specialized field, all that fun stuff. She's also given the credit of being the first mutineer, which I think is, there's probably children here, BS, (laughs) right? Because that instance was Giorgio failing to recognize the resource she had in her first officer, not Michael being insubordinate. Who else knew how to deal with Klingons except for the child of the Vulcan people who figured out how to talk to Klingons? Who else is supposed to do it? It. Yes, probably she was a little spicy when she asked for permission, but she wasn't wrong, right? If anything, Michael's arc has told us is that Sis knows what she's doing. Get out of the way so she can fly for real, okay? And I think it's her, again, is so indicative of so many experiences. Michael has to be the absolute best at everything she does. She is flawless, containing emotions after being a trauma survivor, losing her parents the way she did, growing up the way she did, and then endure trauma again when they tried to blow up her school while she was in it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about it, you know what I mean? Um, for her to have gone through all that, still managed to repress her humanity until she went to the 32nd century and they needed her too, <laughs> right? Endured love lost and then love found again, getting those pips after four, 900 years and then still <laughs> being questioned on the bridge. First of all, I need you to sit your little quarter teaspoon behind down, okay? <laughs> Let her talk. And that's no shade to uh, President Rilla. Cello Horsall was just spectacular mm-hmm. this season. Um, but when someone has, it's, it just shows that someone can do all the right things. They can tick off all the boxes. They can go above and beyond, hand in extra credit work, even take, you know, take a seat when they've done the wrong thing. Thing. And, and it still isn't enough. Like, I hear people in discourse complain about how Michael's too emotional. I'm like, which Michael? Which one are you talking about? Because Michael Burnham didn't cry until she did. I, I, well, I remember. <laughs> I, just, I, get, I, have, I have thoughts. I mean, it, it's interesting how it, like, com- uh, crosses over with, like, real-world discussions of Sneaker Martin Green, because Sneaker Martin Green is fucking fantastic in yeah. everything she does. And I remember when the show started, 
Um, I had friends who were like, I don't really love her acting. She's too emotionless. Like, that's the damn character. And then you see her in, in season four, Miles Quiz, there's one moment where she thinks a character is dead, and the way, like, Susan oh. Martin Green plays that moment, even my, uh, my own criticism of that moment overall in the story, she plays it to perfection, and it's just absolutely wonderful. But people, like, will say she's too emotional now when she was too emotionless. And, like, that sort of placing upon... Um, like any marginalized group, and particularly women, like oh, they need to be this perfect like middle ground of emotion, which they never actually can find because they're gonna people are gonna criticize any show of emotion that women make, um, both in world and in um, in in the real world. It's really deeply frustrating. And then the other thing too that I will say is I love um, how the show both critiques but allows Michael Burnham to feel this like weight of the world on her shoulders because like that's a real feeling that people who like empathize with others and try to care for others feel they try to save everybody and it can be crushing and it can be something worth critiquing of like take care of yourself as well but it's also not something to be like oh this is a worst, the worst thing about you and I love that um, she Burnham's like I, don't, I failed to see the negative when Riley said, points it out in the first episode of season four mm -hmm. I yeah. adored that mm -hmm. just recently a month ago on the Star Trek cruise Sinequa was there and they did a discovery panel and she was talking about how her people on her team on her like publicist team said to her you have to stop crying in interviews and her response to them was I cry because I care mm -hmm. yeah. and that might as well have been Michael Burnham talking as far as I'm concerned Shout out, shout out to, oh, sorry. sorry, please. Oh, just pointing out to going back to the idea of like saying she's too emotional um, as a character. It's funny because Janeway, the biggest criticism was that she wasn't emotional enough. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Hard in the direction of this is the first woman captain we've seen on camera in Starfleet. So we need to make sure she's not too emotional. She's very grounded and composed. And but she still have, has to be cute. Yeah, and people have like a lot of but she needs to be sexy. Yeah, she needs to be everything. So it's like Janeway was not emotional enough. Burnham is too emotional. So is there any perfect amount of emotion? No, no, no matter what show? you do, somebody's gonna be mad. Those gold poster on wheels. Yeah. <laughs> you listen to interviews with uh, with Kate Mulgrew talk about it. Like one thing, something I'm writing for for a video I'm doing where she. She was very omnipresent of the fact that Star Trek at the time was very much considered like the guy show. Like only men watch it, despite the fact that women have been involved in fandom and saved Star Trek from the beginning. Um, Kate Mulgrew was so aware that like, oh, I can't even like, one of the things she said, I don't want Kate to be, or um, Janeway to be in relationships because I think men won't be able to identify with a woman being in a heterosexual relationship, which is abject really ridiculous. Um, but then you see the difference today where now we have Michelle Paradise, like a gay woman running the show, and you get to see a woman character being able to be emotional, get to be in these like relationships that are very open and affectionate, and also she can be like the strong one in that relationship too. Um, and, and that speaks also to Book too, like Book getting to be the one that like has, like gets to show emotions, get to have therapy sessions that a guy would not necessarily have in previous tracks. It's just, it's just so telling the difference, difference in, in gazes that the show can be placed under, whereas like older track, as much as I love it, was very much always catered to like a straight male gaze. Right. So yeah. it's just, yeah. Yeah, even, I'm sorry, I, just to pick back off of what you were saying about yeah. Michael's relationships, even Ash Tyler was this big security guy, but was so emotionally vulnerable, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It didn't present that way to everybody in the, in the crew, but he felt safe with, with her to do that. So to see her be able to not only have romantic relationships, but to see them be diverse and, and not the same type of relationship. Like Michael doesn't have a type. So Sarah, and then we gotta move on. <laughs> yes, so I think one of Michael's biggest strengths is that she brings other women up. 
And that's mm. so important when you are a first and only in the room is that you don't stay the first and only. You bring other people up because you are the only person who is going to be doing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. We have, we've talked about what our characters have gone through. I want to talk about perhaps what some of the panel has gone through in the real world. Mm. I'm going to throw out a litany of questions and basically if you have a story or a, a comment you want to tell, do it, but we got to go fast because we got like 15 minutes left in this panel. Okay, great. So here is that list of questions uh, to, that often come through your mind uh, when you are the first or the only in a room. Are you being tokenized or are you in being included? Mm. Do you change your behavior? Do you change your speech or your appearance? Are you code switching? Yep. Do you make yourself smaller? Or are you trying to take up more space and be louder? Mm. Mm -hmm. One thing I look for about the tokenizing thing is am I being listened to and also are my suggestions being taken into account and to change things? Because yeah. I've been in so many spaces where I was the only black woman, only black Latina woman and they would just like smile and nod when I made the suggestions or put things out and then nothing would change. And it took me years in one case to realize that that's what was going on. And I had just like, I felt like I had wasted a lot of my energy and time on people who just wanted me there to put my picture on the website. Yeah. Just to show how like cool and diverse they are. But they didn't really ever listen to what I, they, they never like, took me seriously as someone who could affect change and be a leader in the space. They're lost, man. They're just not your best. <laughs> hey, say it again, Grace. Say it in the microphone. <laughs> and like, for me, like, uh, as, as a trans person who's often been in rooms like that, how, like, I see how people would use my identity to, like, be able to have their own voice in a conversation that they didn't necessarily need to be a part of or, like, could weaponize or, like, just say like, oh, we have a trans person on the team. So one thing that happened with me is I spilled my water all over Kennedy. No, we're good. Uh, <laughs> was, and I used to work at The Advocate, which is an LGBTQ magazine. And they do wonderful work, and the people there, I know them, they still do wonderful work, but I still have vivid memories of an experience where we had a fairly prominent trans uh, uh, person in politics who, at the time, I learned, I've since learned a lot more about politics. That's another part of like being part of marginalized group. You're kind of um, hard, you have to learn more about the stuff. But at the time, I'm like, I'm just a nerd that wants to make weird stuff. Um, still in that, just more aware. Um, but they asked me, they had this trans politician coming in, and they wanted to ask this person to critique them about like all these things about like, oh, you had conversations with people in the alt-right. And it's like, I had no idea what these questions were about. But they asked me, it's like, well, can you do this interview? Um, because, and all the questions were written for me by this, um, by this gay man, who, again, I love him, but they were questions that were clear he wanted to ask, but by putting them in the mouth of a trans person, he was able to, like, give permission mm -hmm. to ask them to another trans person. Mm -hmm. So it, like, placed me in a situation where I had to be at odds with another trans person, ask these very targeted and very um, antagonistic questions, to a person that like now I actually look up to and so it's like I look back in the interview and I actually have a little bit of shame because it's like I'm attacking this person with these questions um, for like someone else's questions in my mouth because they felt they could use a trans person to camouflage mm -hmm. that fact. Um, it's something I've talked to that person, they're aware of now, but it was, it was one of the roughest things that I've, I did when I was working there because I was the only trans person in the office and they felt that they could do that. So. Yeah. Mm. I've experienced all of those things. Like you just told, like every interaction I've ever had. Um, <laughs> I would say one to, to focus on though is definitely code switching. Mm -hmm. um, to even to, to piggyback on what Elisa was saying about being in rooms where you're the one and only, and you're telling people what needs to happen, and they're and they're not listening. 
my uh, being able to gauge whether or not they're listening is usually very immediate, right? I'm a tall person, I'm a large body person, I have a deeper voice. So when I'm dealing like with male, specifically like cishet male spaces, and I'm just like being, here, this is what you asked me to look at, right? Like, let's talk about the things you wanted to talk about. And instead of them ignoring me, like in Elise's case, or instead of them like kind of like, oh, okay, tuts, right? They get kind of like, and they can't understand why they want a posture. And it's because you're not accustomed to being challenged in this way without it being hostile. Like, I'm not being crappy to you. I'm just looking at this criteria that you want me to analyze, and I'm telling you where you can do better. And so now I have to teach, I have to say it like as a teacher voice and let them come to those conclusions. Oh, look at you. Weren't you paying attention in class? But they, they, they tell you you're being hostile, or you yeah. act like, they act mm -hmm. like you're being hostile. Uh, I said this to somebody yesterday, uh, but like, I myself, I'm ACE and I'm ADHD, and what that means in combination is that charm is not a thing in my world. Like, it, I, I don't understand it, I don't, I can't do it, it's not a thing. I'm a straightforward person and that's how I deal with people. And especially like post-college in a professional world, mm -hmm. I, my feedback were, was often, like at reviews, your work is great, but you're unapproachable and mm. you're, you're hostile. Mm. And I'm like, I'm, I am. <laughs> and it finally dawned, oh, I have to be fake. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because because I am a woman or yeah. and them presenting, I have to be softer and smiley. I'm like, I'm, do I want to do that? Right. And I did it for a while, and I don't do it anymore because I'm over it. Marginalized people will always appear too loud, too angry, too silly, too anything in spaces that were never intended to include them in the first place. Yep. Yeah. Working in a business environment, doing some management and administration, one of the things I learned really fast was that I was a lot of times going to be the youngest person in the room and also the only woman in the room. So it was a fun combination of the two. So first thing I had to do was make sure that everyone knows I'm a grace, not a gracie. Mm. I do not accept diminutives in a business environment and a lot of people are immediately uncomfortable with you setting boundaries like that. Mm -hmm. Even if it's something that small as, no, this is my name, please say it correctly. Yeah. And also, please don't call me sweetheart. Mm -hmm. it's people, it's I, people. I will tell you that now so that HR does not have to tell you that later. Yeah. And that's me doing you a favor. It's people who feel who have never been told to have any boundaries. When they are when boundaries are set for them, they feel like they've been attacked, that they've been encroached oh, on. Yeah. When oh, yeah. that, that's 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 what it is. And I I feel like so much strife and anger and a lot of bigotry comes from people like being confronted with them having done harm, even if unintentionally having done harm, and not being willing to critically analyze that, not being, having give, been given the tools to critically analyze that because they've been told they've never had to critically analyze that in any way, shape, or form. And because of that, they react and say, well, you're the one making me feel uncomfortable, so it can't be my fault, it's you, so I will lash out at you for making me feel uncomfortable. When the truth is, they need to take that listen to that criticism and try to analyze and grow from it. Um, it's not the person that, just because someone made you uncomfortable, it's not their fault that you're uncomfortable. You need to analyze why you're uncomfortable. Hands up if you've been the one to have to say that's not funny and have the entire room <laughs> look at you like you're the fun yeah. People who get pissy when you establish boundaries are the ones who benefited most from you not having them in the first place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. So I'm trying to think how to express this. So I, I think sometimes there's some guilt that comes along 
when you are the first and only in a space because of your attributes, because they wanted to make their space more diverse, so they brought you in there and you feel like maybe you have some imposter syndrome or something. Mm. So I've been in a space with someone where we were at an event and this person was like, oh, I don't think I should take any of these party favors because I'm here for free. And I'm like, no, honey, they are paying for your face at their event. Take advantage of everything. <laughs> Absolutely. One other thing too that I wanna say is like, you were just to bounce off of that. Like marginalized people do feel like we shouldn't take up space we've been taught not to. To use an example that's a Star Trek one, for example, I spoke about it in um, a video that I, I released recently about um, claiming Spock as a gay representation. And so many people, when, when people you know, say like, I see, saw Spock as gay, or I saw him as ace, or I saw him as bisexual, people like, will react aggressively, because it's like, oh, you're taking away from straight people, like straight people own Spock. It's like, number one. It's such a limited commodity. <laughs> exactly, it's like, number one, you have so many. You have so many, you have so many straight characters, and also my reading Spock as gay or ace or anything, it doesn't take away from your reading of him as straight, and I'm not trying to devalue that from you. But the other thing too is when I tweeted about that, I saw trans people who are, um, are LGBTQ people as well saying like, I think it's okay that straight people are in Star Trek, why do we have to take it away from them? Mm. And I saw that from queer people because they have been told that to take up so little space yeah. that when we encroach upon someone else's space, we feel like we're doing a disservice. Like, no, we need to take up space. We, we are allowed to take up the same amount of space as anyone else. It's just been told not to. But we internalize that too. So when we feel like we've encroached them a little bit, we internalize like, oh, I'm so sorry. We, we shouldn't. It's like, no, 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 take the space. Yeah. And it's like, to be real quick about it, one of the things I love about Star Trek now is that it's no longer just Uhura. Mm -hmm. yes. I have so many different types of black female representation in Trek now that no, no one has to be a Burnham at all times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I told the crew That's planning for this trip, I was like, guys, I'm going to try and be my best Michael Burnham, but don't be upset if I end up being back here. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're having fun this weekend, am I right? May I say one last thing? I'll be yep, real quick yep, and I'll yep, shut up. Yep. <laughs> I'll say this real quick. The other thing too on that, speaking, it's why I love Discovery, because there's queer people that get to exist in community with each other. They mm. don't have to be the one queer person that all queer representation rests upon and must be everything for every queer person everywhere. Yes. It's like, no, Jet Reno, we have Grey, we have Adira, we have Stemmets, we have, have Culver, all of them. To be the we have Phillips. Um, yes, Phillips! Yes. 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 I do want to maybe take this a little bit positive and say maybe some actionable items. What from our experiences, what from our, the experiences we've seen of our Star Trek characters, what can we look at and take and internalize and then do? What can we do individually and what do we need to do societally mm -hmm. to make these things better? If you are a cishet white male, do what John Scalzi does and step aside and make room for someone else. Sometimes he's on a panel, he's like, you know, I don't need to be on this panel. Put, some, put a woman on this panel, put a person of color on this panel. One thing, oops, sorry. No, go ahead. One thing that I, I've been trying to analyze myself to do is like, I, on my, my YouTube stuff, like I talk about trans stuff all the time, but I also realize too that like, as I've grown and tried to understand and advocate more, it's like so many of the things that I fight for as a trans person, as a queer person, intersect with like other issues, like racial issues, um, like other minority issues, like all these things. And so I think it's really important for me to try and make sure that like I use the platform that I have 
started to uplift other people and like bring people in from other experiences and say like I should, should not, number one not shy away from these conversations should have them but also make sure that I'm not being the one to centralize my voice in those conversations but allow people to use my platform to have space for that conversation as well and so I think like and it's especially true for like cishet white dudes but but even like within any community like we need to make sure that we're working in coalition with other people and centralizing other voices because that's what Star Trek's all about infinite diversity and infinite combinations working to make each other I may better. make a correction, intersectional diversity. Intersectional diversity, <laughs> yes. In infinite combinations. I love it. So. Yeah, I think being an informed ally, that goes for literally, literally everyone, too. If, even if you are part of the marginalized, and this is kind of a variation of what you're saying, Jesse, but I think, I guess my point is like also coming at it from like staying informed, knowing what's happening in politics that's affecting other marginalized communities so that you can help support them. Um, knowing excuse me, knowing like what indigenous communities are going through even if you're not part of an indigenous community yourself. And just like expanding your worldview in a way that's not just like, oh, I know they exist now, that's good, right? Do I get points for that? No, you don't anymore. Yeah. 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 Nice like, work. work to be informed allies so that we can then be activists on behalf of other people and support each other. The thing I tweet every Pride season is there's more to queer allyship than coming to our parties. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> That I, I love, you, you asked Sue, like, how can we apply these things in the real world? My favorite example of that is when Curzon, not Curzon, um, Jesus Christ. Jadzia? No, who yeah. met Jadzia? Oh, no. Kor? Kor, when Kor met Jadzia, was like, hey, you're not my own friend! Yeah. And she was like, I'm Jadzia now. Jadzia, my own friend! Yeah. Like, instead, yeah. of, instead of him being like, like any other reaction, right? Yeah. Even just a, really? Oh, what? Not a, not a split second. Just yeah. accept people where they are, yeah. right? If you don't understand it, unpack it later, right? If they're cool about it, maybe you can ask them, or better yet, do your own research and figure out how to uh, interact with folks that come from different places as you in the best way possible. It is a, it is a deconditioning is never, ever, ever easy. We've all been conditioned to perceive people a certain way. Deconditioning takes just as long to take root, and it's always messy, yeah. but it's always, always worth it. It costs you zero dollars to respect people where they're at, and I feel like that, you know, moment in track was a great allegory for it. And jumping off of that, like, constantly stay self-critical. Don't let it be, yes. don't let it be crippling in the sense where you, like, are not confident and, like, you can take up space, but, like, constantly be aware, like, you're gonna make mistakes, we're gonna screw up, I've made mistakes, I've said some dumb things numerous times, they are, they exist immortalized on the internet, and sometimes they're just small, private, between, like, people. Like, constantly be aware, like, that thing I was talking about earlier, people not being, like, they, they're made uncomfortable and they want to react against someone else. Like, if, if you're made uncomfortable, be like, where is this coming from? Mm -hmm. Is it something that I am doing and trying to place upon someone else? Like, constantly do that work to self-analyze. It is not, it is not a failing on you if you screw up. It is a failing if you don't do the work to try and make, do better next mm -hmm. time. more for me. Um, use your privilege. So we're all marginalized on some axes and we're all privileged on some axes. Some of us are privileged on a lot of axes and you need to use that for people who are not. I didn't come here intending to like sing John Scalzi's praises, but another thing he does is um, if your con does not have a harassment policy, he will not be a guest at your con. Mm -hmm. um, the most recent world con, um, 
he and Mary Robinette Kowal pressured them to drop a policy that was unfairly affecting marginalized people. And if that policy was not dropped, they were not going to come. So use your privilege for people who do not have it. The problem may not affect you, but you can use your privilege to fix it. Yeah. And there's another thing I think that we don't see enough in Star Trek that you can do if you are one of the firsts or the onlys in the room, and that is to mentor and bring up the people who are coming after you. Um, imagine, I, I had this idea last night, I might have had a little too much to drink, but like imagine if, you know, season four or five, Nog went to Worf and was like, I, people are really being terrible to me at the Academy, I know you went through this. And they even just had a five minute scene of Worf like talking to Nog about what it's like to be the only one of your species at, the, at Starfleet Academy. Right. Um, there's not enough mentorship, I think, in Trek, and that's... I guess my one, my one big complaint about it. <laughs> in real life, there is a direct correlation between George Takei, uh, mm-hmm. sorry, Takei, excuse me, um, to Adira. And there's also a direct line to, um, and we, see, we saw it, like there's a direct line from Michelle Nichols to Whoopi Goldberg mm-hmm. to Sneaker Martin Green. Like there's these direct lines of getting to see people and mentoring people, even if it is from a distance, but like getting to show it, like it's, it's you can clearly see that always going forward. I loved that we saw in Discovery Captain Giorgio doing exactly that to Burnham yes. in the second scene of the entire series. It passes the Bechdel test. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because Giorgio is talking to Michael about how are we going to bring you up? It took 50 years, but we got there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are out of time. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go down this table, ask everybody to say where they can be found on the internet and where they can be found at the rest of this con really quickly. Hey, I'm Elisa Pearl. You can find me at Elisa Pearl on Twitter and Instagram. I'll be down at the Women at War booth 2126 uh, for the rest of the day after I get a little lunch. <laughs> and I'm Grace. You can find me on Twitter at Jake and also at the Women at War booth. And also wandering this con in a daze because, wow, that's a lot of people. We just happen to be sitting in this order. That's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Miyoko or you can find my fanzine Star Trek Quarterly on Facebook or at Star, Star Trek quarterly.wordpress.com um, You can find me at Jesse Gender on Twitter but I also am on YouTube at Jesse Gender as well. I make LGBTQ and social and political content through Nerds and Geekdom so just if you're a big Trekkie I talk way too much about Trek. No such thing. It's physically impossible. <laughs> We're on a mission. Uh, hi, my name's Kennedy. You can find me on the internet at that Mikey chick. That's that. T- uh, Mikey, M-I-K-E-Y-C-H-I-C-K Don't act up in my comments because I'll drag you publicly before blocking you. She will. One. Two, you can also find other content uh, at your away team. Uh, we are actually here this weekend. We're just incognito because we're from the future and we shouldn't be interacting. I'll probably get reprimanded by a temporal, no no temporal officer later on. Um, I will too be at the Women at Work booth 2126. Come on, say hello. And I'm Sue. Uh, my Twitter is Spaltor, S-P-A-L-T-O-R. Uh, and if you like conversations like this, please check out our podcast, womenatwarp.com. Come by the booth, 2126. I've got a couple of business cards up here. We've got a lot more and some free pronoun buttons uh, downstairs on the show floor. Thanks so much for coming out, everybody. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit womenatwarp.com. Email us at crew at womenatwarp.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. Thanks so much for listening.